0: And so I want to encourage you to uh, have a Bible in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, or if you don't have it with you, if you don't have it with you, you've got, you got to bring your sword when you go into battle, right? We're going to bring your textbook when you go to study. So uh, if you don't have one, uh, by all means, put your hands up. And uh, Mr. Todd, uh, who just got back from a big vacation, will uh, be happy to make sure that you've got a Bible. If you have an electronic device, the Wi-Fi information is inside your program. Uh, but you want to make sure that you have God's word in your hand. You're not just taking somebody's word for it. So as we, uh, as we do this, we're going to be in Luke chapter 13. And we will, be, uh, we will be beginning with verse 10. I'll tell you what, just to get us in the right frame of mind so that we understand what we're doing is weighty. Let's all stand together out of reverence for God's word as I read this for you. Luke writes, On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites. what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. Again he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like, a, it is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you, or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you, and and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you, or where you come from, away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there, and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. At that time, some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, Go tell that fox I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings... You are not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Father, as we open your word today, Guide our hearts, guide our minds. Prepare us. Lord, your word tells us that only those with clean hands and a pure heart can approach your high and holy hill. We recognize and confess that that's not us. We come with the sin that comes from our hearts We come stained with the sin of the world around us. We come with the burdens of the world weighing us down. And Father, before we engage with you in your word, we choose to lay those down at your feet. Some of us right now are heavy hearted. because of the suffering in the world that weighs us. Some of us are burdened because of relationships gone awry that are not what you intend. Some of us carry fears of an unknown future. (coughs) Father, some of us are restless, seeking something we can't seem to find. May our souls remain restless until we find our rest in you. Father, open our eyes and our minds to this text. Cleanse us of all unrighteousness as we lay our our sins and our cares before Jesus, trusting that he is enough to cleanse us. Help us to enter through the narrow door, Lord. That we might, like this woman in Luke, be set free. These things we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As we look at this story, I'm going to, to do my best to kind of stay focused and move along and not burden you with extra illustration uh, that is seeking to make you laugh or to try to engage your attention, I believe with my whole heart that the text itself is enough to gain your attention. So my job as the preacher, the proclaimer, is just to tell you the truth and try to put it in a way that you can understand it, so that you can connect the dots of what God is saying through Luke as Luke records the words of Jesus and the actions of Jesus for us. (laughs) Those of you who have been with us throughout this series may remember from the very beginning that Luke says at the outset, I'm writing this to his friend Theophilus, which means lover of God, so it's a perfect extension for the rest of us. He's intending for it to be read in the church, but he's writing it for the express purpose that those who are hearing or reading it would know the certainty of the faith that they've been taught. We need to know the truth of the gospel. And now as he's recording it, all of the things that he's putting together, he's putting together for that reason. That's his intent. And we're building to a climax. We will see that. We'll be talking through those things. We'll kind of step away from Luke the next couple of weeks as we look at uh, the triumphal entry or, or Palm Sunday. We will have our dedication service next week for our new location as we consecrate that building and that property to the Lord. And then we'll celebrate the resurrection on Easter. And that's the climax of the story that we'll see at the end of Luke, but we're not there yet. So we have to kind of hit pause, look at it, we'll come back to it. But Jesus now is on his way there. He has done his preaching around Judea, the area around Galilee. He is done his his establishing of his identity, it's clear now who he is. And now he has set his face. He's resolutely decided, this is my path. I'm going to Jerusalem. And he has a goal in mind. He knows, and he has expressly told his disciples what is going to happen. I will go. I'll be betrayed. I'll be killed and after three days I'll rise again. He knows what he's heading into, so when the Pharisees say, Herod's trying to kill you, Jesus is not phased. But having established all of these things, as he's in the area known as Perea, he's moving toward Jerusalem, out of the area near Galilee, we see this story again. It's not a It's not an unfamiliar story. We've seen Jesus repeatedly heal people or cast out demons on the Sabbath day, have we not? And every time we get the same result, the people are amazed, the leaders are indignant. Jesus knows this, Luke knows this, we know this. So why again? Why are you telling us this story again? Whenever we come across things in the scripture that seem to be weird or awkward or don't seem to fit or seem contradictory, we need to be asking ourselves, why? And as we read a passage to gain the context of it, to be able to get what it is that he's saying, we need to ask ourselves, why is he saying this? Why is he saying this here? What would be missing from our understanding of what God is doing if this weren't included? So there's more to it than just, oh yeah, Jesus heals people. We know that. That's not news at this point. There's a reason, however, that Luke includes it. He is building us to a full, confident foundation in our faith. This is a transition into a new segment, a new unit of thought. Great word, you might write it down, pericope. If my brother were here, he would chuckle. We learned this word together earlier uh, in March. And in all of my years, I'd never heard this word. So I'm gaining vocabulary as we go. Pericope. Brad, can you put it up there if you find it? P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E, I I believe is correct. uh, If I said it right. It's a unit of thought. So as we're looking at this, Luke is transitioning, and part of the structure that we see is he is moving from one thing to another with a new story. And this new story sets us up, it's it's the setup pitch for what's about to happen, what he's about to unload on us, and he hits a home run. So as we're dealing with this particular thing, I just totally mixed my metaphor there, but anyway, as we're, uh, as we're doing this, baseball people know what I'm talking about. You know when I blow it. As we're dealing with this news story, we need to look at the context. We need to look at what it was that happened before that's leading into this so we can understand it. Last week we saw that... Jesus was establishing a message of judgment. It was a harsh message last week. In fact, our core reality was that judgment is coming, but mercy is available. We learned that hard truth destroys soft peace. In other words, that truth inevitably divides before it can unify. We learned that mercy is urgent because judgment is final. There is a very urgent need for us to turn, to repent, to change our mind about our direction so that we change our direction. To turn from our way to Christ. To seek mercy before we stand before the judge because then it's too late. It's final when the judgment comes. So we need to seek mercy before that time. We learned that business as usual means destruction as promised. Just doing life normally, the way everybody does, puts you in the default mode of everybody. That default mode is death and judgment and the wrath of God. That's what all of us get. That's our default. So we need to seek His mercy quickly because we don't know when that's going to end. All that is normal in this broken, fallen, sinful world will be destroyed. Only that which is supernatural will remain. And lastly, we learn that God's offer of mercy has a deadline. That salvation is available now in Christ, but it's not available forever. If you wait There's an expiration date on that offer. That's the setting. That's the context as Jesus comes into this next portion. So Luke transitions away from that, uh, from from what we see in uh, Luke 13, 9. And he goes into this new story in 10. How do we know that? When he gives us this phrase on a Sabbath, we see the scene change. So now he goes from this talking to, we're going to jump. It's not necessarily a chronological thing. That's not how he's trying to set it up. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. But he's put it, putting it together for a purpose in units of thought. So on a Sabbath, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. Okay, wait a minute. We've shifted scenes. Notice what happens. As we shift scenes, there is a story of something that actually happens in the present for Jesus. (coughs) Then Jesus gives a couple of parables or, or word pictures to help the people who are there understand what it is that he's trying to get across to them, what the kingdom of God is like. Then he gets this question about who's going to be saved. It's an interesting question in light of everything that he's already said. But he answers this question with a very specific answer. And the answer is both good news and bad news at the same time. Unfortunately for far too many it's bad news because they're left outside condemned. And we see in the final segment here that it breaks Jesus' heart. As he's advancing toward Jerusalem he's thinking forward to what he's doing and he will later when he gets there weep over them but he laments over Jerusalem he laments this horrible thought that people will be lost here's our core reality for today this is the overriding thought that we'll see throughout this so it kind of binds all of these little passages together God offers real life to everyone, but only through Christ. Okay, this is the point that he's making. All of these little paragraphs play into one story, telling one point, that point is this, God offers real life to everyone, but only through Christ. Let's say it together so it's in our minds. God offers real life to everyone, but only through Christ. We see this picture Uh, um, in the very first portion of it, as we start with verse 10, we see the woman being healed on the Sabbath. And we have to ask, as I said earlier, why this? Why here? Why is he saying this again? We already know that Jesus can heal people, so it's not that. We already know that he's not bound by the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. That's been established. So it's not that. So why is it included, and why is it included in this particular place As Jesus is shifting his teaching here. Because it's an illustration of the point that he's making. This is the setup pitch. This is Jesus giving a context so that everybody who is present can grasp it. They're going to see the playing out of the principles behind everything that's going to follow for the rest of this pericope as we go through it. had to get it in one more time here's the picture write this down the mercy of God is rooted in divine relationship not human restrictions the mercy of God is rooted in divine relationship not human restrictions notice what happens in this uh in this passage on the Sabbath, Jesus is teaching in one of the synagogues. That's normal for him. A woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. This is not a, oh, she's got a, a, a bad thing. We're going to quickly heal her. She's been suffering. But notice, not only has she been suffering for 18 years of being stooped over. She couldn't even straighten up. 18 years. I'm getting sore already just trying to show you here. 18 years she stooped, bent, broken. We're told specifically that this is from an evil spirit oppressing her. That, this, that Satan has her bound. But you know what she keeps doing for these 18 years? She keeps going to the synagogue. How many of us lose faith when things get hard? Things are hard for her. There's no hope that she can see in any physical healing. We didn't see this from doctors they don't have the same kind of technology we might see today she's not getting spine surgery or some magic massage what she sees only is that her only hope is in God we don't even know what her relationship to God is we just know that she's still after 18 years going to the synagogue she knows that there is something there if I have any hope at all it will be where the scriptures are being read and discussed where the people who seek God meet together. So she's there, present in the synagogue. She couldn't straighten up at all. Verse 12, when Jesus saw her, notice, notice this. She doesn't come and say, Jesus, Jesus, please heal me. She's not coming down to the front of the church, begging and pleading. We've seen that in some other, uh, in some other situations Where people need healing, and they're you know cutting holes in the roof to get get down to Jesus. They're pushing through the crowd. This woman is there, she's present, and Jesus saw her. And he called her forward. Now that might have been embarrassing for her. I'm gonna go forward and I'm gonna display for everyone my infirmity. She might be trying to hide in the crowd, like so many of us do when the devil has us bound. And yet Jesus calls her forward. There is no hiding. And as part of calling her forward, he says to her, woman, you are set free from your infirmity. Now notice something here. When Jesus, we've already established, he's the Lord of creation. He is the ruler of all things physical and spiritual. Everything that is, he is the boss of. When Jesus said, you're set free, how many of you know that woman was set free? She was immediately free when Jesus said, you are set free from your infirmity. She's not bound anymore. And yet, Jesus takes hold of her. He puts his hands on her in verse 13. And as Jesus puts his hands on her, immediately she straightened up and praised God. She was free at the speaking of the word but the experience of that freedom required the act of Jesus' hands. Her relating to that, connecting it and straightening up. And immediately she knew where the glory would go. As soon as she was healed and stood and experienced that healing she praised God. How many of us receive healing and we're like the lepers who were healed and went away praising excited forgot to say thank you nobody came and praised jesus and thanked him for what he did they just went on their way in their own excitement for their blessing we're like that a lot of the time this woman immediately praises god in the presence of everyone notice the reaction of the synagogue leader indignant in verse 14 indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. We're back to that again. Hasn't he already talked about this enough times? Hasn't he already addressed this? You know, these, the, the synagogue leaders, the Pharisees, the, the, the religious rulers and leaders of the, of the area have already decided and conspired together to try to remove him, to try to kill him. It's not a secret. They're talking about it amongst one another. Do you really think this was a surprise to him? I have to wonder if he didn't already have his answer worked out. So as soon as this happened, he probably saw, okay, Jesus is here in the synagogue. You know what's going to happen. He's going to heal somebody. He's going to cast out some demon. What am I going to say? I'm not going to even talk to Jesus. I'm going to talk to the people. You people, you've got six days to work. Quit bringing your problems to church. that's what he does. He addresses the people. There are six days for work. So come, be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Anything you want, just not on the Sabbath. We have rules about these things. The Lord answered him in verse 15, You hypocrites. He answered him, but he speaks in the plural. He's speaking not only to him, but to all who would oppose these things. All who are in the leadership, most obviously, but all who would oppose the work of God with this attitude. Maybe it's not the leaders. Maybe it's the people in, in the crowd who are thinking in their holier-than-thou thoughts, oh, ho, ho, we don't want to do these things that violate the traditions. Jesus says, you hypocrites. Doesn't each one of you, as you go through your Sabbath day, when you're not supposed to work, and by the way, you're not Lord of the Sabbath, I am, I'm adding that part from previous statements that he makes. Doesn't each one of you then untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? You sinners! You're watering your donkey? You're watering your ox? How dare you? It's the Sabbath. Now, Jesus does like to use sarcasm here, as we'll see as we go through this. But the reality is, he's not condemning them for doing that. You all do work to whatever extent. When you start to get legalistic about it, you miss the point. This day is set aside for worship so that you know this is not a day for me to make money. This is not a day for me to support myself. It's not a day for me to get stuff done. It's a day for me to worship God and to own the fact that God is my provider, not my own effort. That's the purpose of the Sabbath as we deal with this but you still take care of your ox and donkey. Now, don't misunderstand. If you don't water them that day, they're not gonna die, but they will suffer. It's bad for them to be thirsty all day. It's bad for them not to have water. So it's a right thought that they should go and take care of their animals. The problem is that they're valuing the donkey more than this woman valuing the rules more than the relationship. They're not having compassion on this woman. Jesus could have waited another day to heal her. It's been 18 years, so it's not like, you know, one more day is going to be the worst thing in the world. But he deliberately heals on the Sabbath to make the point that the mercy of God is rooted in divine relationship, not in human restrictions. You've got your rules, forget about them. It's not about your rules. It's not about what you think. The heart of God is expressed in compassion. It's interesting that they say, hey, come on any other day of the week. Except for, here's the problem Jesus is here now. If we come back later when he's not here, which of you clowns is going to do the healing? This is the guy. It's through him that she can be set free. You've been here this whole time. You ain't done nothing. And she's been suffering. No, no, no. The healer is here. We come now. Because he's the only one who can set her free. This is the picture of what he's going to be talking about through the rest of the passage. That there is one way to be set free. One person who can do this. And if you don't come to that person... If you let the rules, the expectations, if you let all of that stuff get in the way, then you will miss out. And one day it'll be too late. We see as we move through this, after we look at the picture, we see the kingdom presented here. Right after this happens, Jesus shares two, call them parables, two metaphors, two word pictures that, that present some truth about the kingdom of God. Now, because we're looking at this as one unit of thought, we're seeing him build from this picture through uh, a, a rising action here. There is a continuation in the thought. He comes right out of that idea that the mercy of God is rooted in divine relationship, not human restrictions. And he says this in verse uh, 18. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in, in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and the birds perched in its branches. And Matthew's telling of this, uh, it says it's the smallest of all the seeds. It's a tiny little seed. So tiny. And yet when it gets planted and it grows it becomes this massive thing, such a a tree that the birds themselves can come and land in its branches and make their nests. The kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like that. It looks small. It starts small from this little seed. He'll make other comparisons of himself to seed. But it starts so tiny. And yet as it grows, It's vast. It's massive. And there's room for everyone. There's room for everyone who will come. I think there's a little more than that. These birds that are perching in the branches, they don't appear to be part of the kingdom. It seems an awful lot like what we see from the influence of the church. Jesus called us to be salt and light, to be an influence in our world around us. As we reflect the reality of Christ through relationships, we provide sanctuary, shelter, rescue, hope to this hurting world around us. They may not all enter the kingdom, but even those who do not, even those who don't know Christ can have value added to their temporal life simply by our presence as we hold out the compassion of Christ The church influences the world and provides shelter. The kingdom is vast and massive. We see he also says, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? Uh, Verse 21, it's like yeast, like leaven, that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. This large quantity of flour. She's making a big old batch of dough, right? 60 pounds worth. Little bit of yeast in there. And that little bit of yeast, she works all through the whole thing. And it influences the whole batch. It's not just in spots. It works all through the dough. And as it has its, its reaction, its chemical reaction, the catalyst that, that changes this bread. Now generally speaking, yeast is a picture of wickedness. But here Jesus is using it for a different purpose. To show that there's a spreading there's an invasiveness, a pervasiveness that happens with the kingdom. In other words, it works through all parts of society. It's not just in the synagogue. It's not just in the church. It's not just the good pope people. Popel people. It's not just those from the right side of the tracks or their proper economic class or a certain skin color or speaking a particular language or living this way or that way in a particular lifestyle. The gospel of the kingdom is for everyone. And it works its way through all social classes, through all the human divisions and restrictions that we've set up, even through the different kinds of sin. That we might look at and say, oh, that's so terrible. It's no different than anybody else's sin at its essence. And the gospel works its way through all of that. It's big enough to have room for everyone, and it works its way through every facet of society so that no one is exempt. The good news is not bound by human expectation. The good news is not bound by human expectation. You might have a hard time understanding how this can be. It doesn't matter because God is doing it. You see that mustard seed, it's so tiny, it probably has to produce a tiny plant, right? No, it produces a, a vast, great plant. It's called a tree as, it, as its branches spread out. It gives shade and shelter That tiny little bit of yeast, that can't possibly affect 60 pounds of flour. and Yet it does, and it works its way all through the batch. God's kingdom, the good news, the gospel, is not bound by human expectation. Just as we see in that picture of the woman being set free by Christ, we see that it doesn't matter what the background is you can come we also see that you have to get healed through the one the synagogue leader couldn't do it jesus could notice what jesus says about the door verse 22 then jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. So we've changed scenes physically, but the unit of thought is still continuing. So we go from this picture of the woman into these parables of the kingdom. Now we're into this uh, new scene as he's preaching throughout the villages, still moving deliberately toward Jerusalem. And somebody asks him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Now, I have to chuckle a little bit as I see this because He just spent chapter 12 and the first part of 13 saying, yeah, basically only a few people are going to be saved. (laughs) And basically, you need to understand how this works. Most people won't be saved. But it won't be because it's not offered. It's offered to everyone. But you have to choose it. You have to decide to seek God while he may be found. And if you don't, the time will come when you can't. Notice this. Christ is the only entrance to God's kingdom. Christ is the only entrance to God's kingdom. Before we look at this passage, I, I want to I just get a, a picture in your mind. Some of you have recently been to Walt Disney World. If you've ever been to Disney or or Um, other theme parks now do similar things. They have a thing that I love. See, I I hate standing in line. I mean, I hate standing in line. I'll let everybody else go through the line at the potluck thing because I'm just not going to. I'm going to wait, and I'll get up when everybody's done. Whatever's left, that's good. I just hate standing in line. Except for at Splash Mountain because I love looking at all the little stuff there. So Disney's a little bit different with that. But they have this thing called a fast pass. Raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about. Okay. So this fast pass, which I think has changed since the last time I was at Disney, but the, the idea of this is you can purchase this pass that lets you jump through the line. You don't have to. You can come at a particular time, and you can get in, and you don't have to wait for like four hours in some of these lines, whatever the, the ridiculous wait is. You waste your whole day standing in line, or you can get the fast pass. And that's great, because you walk up there and they're like, oh, yeah, come on in, it's your turn. <laughs> yes, I don't have to wait in line. Here's the problem, though. If you try to do that without the fast pass, they'll kick you out of the park. If you try to jump the line, and you get up there, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get ahead of everybody else, but you don't have the pass, you don't get to go. And then security has a nice little conversation with you. Because you don't get to break the rules. Keep that in mind as we look at this next portion. Remembering that Christ is the only entrance to God's kingdom. Jesus responds to them in verse 24. The question is, are only a few people going to be saved? He doesn't say yes, no. He gives them a full picture of it. He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. That can be a tough verse if we're not seeing the whole picture here. So Jesus is answering them by saying essentially, stop worrying about how many people are going to be saved and make sure you're one of them. You can't come without the fast pass and think you can jump the line. This is why Jesus says, many will try to enter and will not be able to. We'll see John 10 in a few moments. And he'll talk about it in a very clear manner there. Jesus says, there is one entrance. Make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading. Sir, open the door for us. But he'll answer, I don't know you. Get out. Get out. And you'll beg and plead and say, Oh, but, but 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 we ate with you, we drank with you, you you were in our town, you preached in our synagogue, you were here in our streets. You don't have the pass. You don't get to ride the ride. You're out. Jesus is not saying anything that even a little bit implies that you can come to him and you'll be rejected. What he's saying is when you try to get into the kingdom through some other way, you will be rejected every time. If you try to come through your human traditions, through living a good life, through going to church, meeting all the regulations, praying through your beads, going to your confession, doing your penance, if you go to the right church and you get a real life t-shirt, even becoming a church member or writing checks or going on mission trips, none of that gets you in. There's one way. One way to heaven. It's Jesus. Enter through the narrow door. Many are going to try. They won't be able to. The door will one day be closed and it will be too late for you. Notice in verse 28. There will be weeping there. Where? He's not talking about heaven. It's not going to be weeping in heaven. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. You know what that tells me? It tells me that those who are not in the kingdom of God those who are condemned to hell will get to see what's happening that they can't be a part of. When you see the patriarchs and the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you're thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south, not just from Israel, but from the four corners of the earth, not just from The evangelical church, but from the four corners of the earth, not just from real life or just from America or just from your political party, but from the four corners of the earth, people will come of great diversity. And they'll take their places at the feast in the kingdom. People you didn't expect, people that didn't look like you, people who may have sinned differently than you. And in the midst of this, if you're not in, you will be racked with eternal regret. Someone has said that one of the greatest tortures of hell is being able to remember opportunities missed. That the call went out and I didn't take it that the door was open and I didn't enter. I tried to go some other way and the owner of the house said no. Indeed, in verse 30, he says, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. It seems to be a very clear picture that he's saying for the synagogue leaders and others. It's a juxtaposition here. You thought you had this down with your respectable religion. You've done all the right things, but you don't get in. You were first, but now you're last. Those of you who thought you had nothing to offer God, you were right. And when you fell on your face before God to seek mercy, you found it. You were last, now you're first. Because you entered through the narrow door. Christ is the only entrance to God's kingdom. Turn, if you would, to the right. The very next book of the Bible is the book of John. And we're going to take a look at Jesus saying very similar things in John chapter 10. We're going to start with verse 1. There's more in here, but you'll see what he's talking about. Depending on your translation, it may say gate or it may say door. The same idea applies in either case. The NIV says gate because you're talking about sheep. When we're talking about people, we might call it a door. Here's what Jesus says, starting in verse 1. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. You can't jump the line without the pass. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees didn't understand what he was telling them. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me, not the prophets, but all who have come before him as The Messiah, who have claimed to be Messiah, who have claimed to come in the name of the Lord. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. He goes on beyond this illustration to speak of himself as the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. (laughs) This picture of Christ as the door, as the gate, is very, very clear. I don't think it's possible for Jesus to have said it more clearly and explicitly. Come through me, everybody else is a faker. Any other path fails. You cannot impress God with your good deeds. You can't religion your way to God. You can't say the right things or do the right things. You can fool everybody around you. You can fool the preacher. Shoot, you might even fool yourself, but you can't fool God. He is the true bouncer, and you don't get in without his say-so. Last we see that this weeping, this pain that the people will feel, not only is their own pain, but God himself feels pain. You ever think about that? Whatever pain you're feeling in this sinful, broken world, God feels only Infinitely, He suffers with you. Where is God when I'm hurting? Right there. Amen. Hurting more for you than you could ever hurt yourself. Where is God in my depression? He's there with you. Grieving the fact that you can't see reality rightly. Where is God in my fear? He's there with you. Grieving the fact that you don't realize that he holds you in the palm of his hand. Notice this. The heart of God mourns over those who reject the good news of salvation through Christ alone. The heart of God mourns over those who reject the good news of salvation through Christ alone. See what happens here in verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place, go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. They want him out of this area. They'd love for him to go back to Judea, keep the the damage control. We want to get him out of here, we don't want him spreading. Now, it seems, based on Jesus' response, that maybe Herod does want to kill him. Maybe not. Maybe he's just going with it to make the point. But it seems like it. Pretty clear picture that the Pharisees are not saying this for the best interests of Jesus. Since they want to kill him, and we've seen that repeatedly, they want him eliminated at any cost, and eventually they will, they're not trying to rescue him from Herod. They're trying to shut him up. They're trying to use fear to silence him. The devil uses that tactic a lot. To try to intimidate you so that you don't speak out, you don't live out your faith. If I can just keep it quiet, not rock the boat, everything will be good. We live in a world that is increasingly here in the United States where we cherish freedom is increasingly restricting religious freedoms. But understand the Bill of Rights does not give you religious freedom. It merely acknowledges it. The Constitution does not grant rights to human beings. God does. You simply recognize it through the government. When we begin to get fearful that we might get sued when we take a stand, or we might get arrested if what we preach is considered hate speech, in case you're wondering, I'm not worried. The fact of the matter is, none of that matters. Jesus is not phased by the thought that Herod wants to kill him. Oh no, guess what, I came here for that. God has a purpose that's bigger than you can imagine. I'm not afraid of Herod. He doesn't even acknowledge it. Notice what he does say. Go tell that fox. Let me just point out, fox is a particularly derogatory term here. Tell that sneaky, crafty, bloodthirsty vermin. That's the picture that they would have as they hear this. You tell that fox... I'll keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. Now, my take on this, I can't say this is absolute because others don't agree with me on it, but my take on this is that he's probably not sending a message to Herod. They're probably not going to tell Herod anyway. He's sending a message to them in the context of the conversation. Here's my agenda. Try and stop me. Here's my agenda. I will be here. Here's my cell phone number. Here is my itinerary. Nothing can stop this. Go tell that fox, I'll keep on driving on demons and healing people today and tomorrow and on the third day I'll reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. This is holy sarcasm. Jesus is speaking condemnation of the Jewish people his people this is not anti-Semitism don't buy into that lie Jesus is saying the people of God the people whom I have chosen have rejected me and Jerusalem has become synonymous with the killing of the prophets he just said that to the scribes a little bit before this your fathers killed the prophets and you raise monuments to them. You're preparing tombs. All of the blood of the prophets falls on this generation. So his sarcasm is condemnation, but what he says next is less anger than it is a mourning, a grieving, a compassionate pain in his own heart. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. I would suggest to you that this particular sentence is bigger than we think. This particular sentence I would submit to you is speaking to Christ as God himself. He's only been here for a short period of time. He's wrapping up three years of public ministry, only 33 years on the earth. And he's speaking of how how often I've longed to gather up the people of Jerusalem, the children of Israel, as Jerusalem, the city of David, the jewel of Israel represents the nation. And I've longed to gather you as a, a hen gathers her chicks under her wings to protect you, to save you, to redeem you, but you wouldn't have it. Look, verse 35. Your house has left you desolate. (coughs) I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 116, I won't have you turn there, but Psalm 116 alludes to this. We'll see as Jesus approaches Jerusalem that that's what they will do. Most of us are familiar with Palm Sunday. As Jesus rides into town on a donkey, they celebrate him as the coming king. And they're laying palm branches and coats in front of him for him to walk on. And they're shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But this prophetic word in the Psalms and what Jesus is saying here isn't just referring to that. In what is known as the law of double fulfillment, we see a short-term and a long-term fulfillment. He will have this said when he enters Jerusalem. So it's fulfilled in the short-term in that way. You won't see me again, Jerusalem, until you cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But there is a greater day. Last week we talked about the day of the Lord and the judgment that is coming. That day, that final annunciation when Jesus is presented as not just the Lamb of God but the Lion of Judah and He rises up and He judges the world and the cry will go up, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the great fulfillment. The bigger fulfillment. As Jesus says these things, his heart is grieved because those he loves so dearly are rejecting and will reject the good news that they can be saved. They want to enter through some other gate. They won't go through the narrow door. They think we've got our own door. We've got our own way. It's a wider way. Everybody can come. Now they think it's narrow because it's for Israel follow the sacrifices and so on Jesus says your your house is left to you desolate there's two prongs to that fork the house of Israel the house of Jacob left desolate and the house of God Bethel the temple left desolate in very short order both will be destroyed the people will be scattered throughout the nations and in AD 70, when when Jerusalem is destroyed, there's nothing left. The people are scattered around. The temple will be destroyed before that. On a greater scale, on a grander scale, the rituals, the sacrifices are being destroyed. This is what the prophets condemned at the time. Hollow sacrifices. In the Old Testament, the the prophets condemned Israel as the Lord said, I don't want your sacrifices. I want you. Stop worshiping me. Your worship stinks. It smells like death. I don't want it. I reject it. Jesus says, all all of this stuff, all these structures, this wide way of religion, this is not from God. This is your stuff. And it's all going to burn. But if you'll come through the narrow door, there's room inside for everyone. The kingdom is vast, and it's pervasive, and no one is excluded who will come through the door. But you have to come through the narrow door. There is no other way. You can't go right. You can't go left. You have to go down the middle. You have to come through Christ. This matters because it, because it is the central reality of your own personal life. And you will, every single one of us, every single one of us will face this reality. You will either come through the door or you will be left outside where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, wishing that you had come through the door. That will happen for all of us, every person. There is no exception. No person in the history of humankind, no person anywhere on the planet has any other option. You come through the door or you stand outside wishing that you had for eternity. Jesus has compassion on the people. And if we get this, then it changes our heart. When we come through the door, when we embrace Christ and we are in him, then His compassion is reflected in us. And we can't look at people the same way anymore. We can't look at people through regular human, worldly eyes. We can only see them through spiritual eyes. So it's not that person who disagrees with me on whatever issue. It's not whatever label the world has put on them. It's that that image-bearer, that soul made for a relationship with God who is in torment because of their sin, and I have to help them. And we grieve those who turn away rather than saying, well, sirs, you're right. Ah, you should have believed. You didn't go to church. You get what you deserve. All of that is true, but that's not the heart of God. The heart of God mourns and grieves At one person being lost, let alone all of the souls that will end up in hell. First, don't let that be you. Come through the door. Come to the altar of the cross. The sacrifice has been made on the altar of the cross for you if you will come and receive it. There's nothing left for you to pay. It's been paid. The sacrifice has been offered. You simply need to apply it to your life by trusting in it. And if you have done that, then after you have received that and entered through the door and become part of this kingdom, become a child of God, perfectly loved and accepted and forgiven, then live with the reality of Christ ever present In your mind and your heart. Set your mind on things above. Let your heart break for those who don't know Him. Live with the compassion of Christ. The same compassion that He showed to you. And if that compassion doesn't fill you, then you probably haven't entered through the door. You probably thought there was another way. Those who have received grace give grace. Understand that there is only one name by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12 is our memory verse for today. Luke also writes that book and he says, Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. This is what we celebrate when we come to this remembrance celebration every month, on the first Sunday of the month, every month we remember and celebrate the price that was paid for our freedom. You can be set free. Praise God, many of us, hopefully most of us in this room, have been set free by entering through the narrow door. But that free salvation that you're able to receive came at the cost of Jesus' life. He says, nobody takes my life from me. I willingly lay this down. I lay it down for my sheep. And if you are His, then you'll respond to that. Today is the day that we remember. And as we do that, as we celebrate this communion, we call it communion because we partake together of the body and blood of Christ. One one cup, one loaf, one Jesus. We're all united in that. That's why we call it communion. We call it sometimes the Eucharist. Eucharist is from a Greek word that means thanksgiving. And we, we receive it with thankfulness that God has saved us in Christ. We are thankful as we remember The horrible, horrible price that was paid for my sin and your sin. So it's called Eucharist for that reason. It's called the Lord's Supper because Jesus shared it with his disciples, his friends, in that borrowed upstairs apartment. As they celebrated their final Passover meal together. We'll do that next week. Next week? Week after. I lose track of dates. And Jesus connected the dots for them and said, now this that you've seen before as the affliction of the people, you need to understand this represents my body broken on your behalf. This cup that we have celebrated for thousands of years in remembrance of the blood of the lamb painted over the doorposts in Egypt that caused death to pass us over, this now represents my blood poured out for you. A whole new way of relating to God. As Jesus walked them through that, they still didn't get it. They would, but they didn't. But he established that, and that's why we call it the Lord's Supper. Here at Real Life, we call it the remembrance celebration because Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Every time you celebrate this, remember. Remember the way I died for you. Remember that the price was fully paid for your sin and celebrate because, in God's grace, you can be set free. With that in mind, as the band comes forward, let's pray together and prepare our hearts to receive this meal. Father in heaven, We thank you that you offer real life to every person from every background, in every age. But you only offer it through Jesus. Lord, remind those of us who know this of the reality of it. Remind us every time we take this bread and this cup that there is only one who paid the price for our sin? Lord, we remember this and we celebrate, and we celebrate because there is nothing left to pay. All the punishment that we deserve for our wretchedness falls on Christ. Father, I pray even now in this very moment that you would cause each one of us to take very seriously our unholiness. Father, that you would cause each of us to be overwhelmed with the reality that we personally put Jesus on that cross. Every single one of us drove those nails with the hammer of our sin. but only those who choose to receive it will find grace in that same cross. will receive mercy from the perfect judge. Father, I pray that you would move in us to draw us to the altar of the cross, not, not just the table of communion, but the, the altar where the sacrifice was offered on our behalf. Thank you for Jesus as we pray in his name. Amen. The band's going to play for a little bit. Then we'll sing together as they they play this song. As they're playing, I would invite you to come forward. We have three stations, two at the front and one at the back. Take a piece of the bread and the cup. Now only do this if you are all in with Jesus. If you have personally decided to enter that narrow door if you have been reborn in Him, but if you have, even if you have just done that today, then by all means, take these symbols of His sacrifice. Go back to your seat and pray. Think about it. Let it sink in. And as we sing together, you can sing or you can just listen, but let it soak into you. Our sin debt was paid for. We need to let it be deep in us as we take it seriously. With that, I invite you to come and dine.